0: The shares of Facebook, they continue their decline to about $175 right now. That uh, drop being reflected because of the poor report that the company gave after the close of trading yesterday. Surprising many analysts. Joining us now, Colin Gillis, Director of Research at Chatham Road Partners. Colin Gillis, always a pleasure. Uh, If someone said to you, gee, I'm an analyst who covers Facebook and I just got dinged by what they reported What are you feeling right now?
2: It's a a painful day to watch Facebook shares, but a little bit of perspective is needed, right? The the shares are just back to the level they were at in May. We knew that Facebook was going to be continuing to invest in security. We knew there was going to be some concerns around the GDPR, right? The General Data Protection Regulation that's happening in Europe. So the magnitude of the pullback uh, is severe. But this is still a real company, and it's still a real business, and it's still in an area where we're going to see material growth.
1: All right. So, uh, Colin, uh, is this a buying opportunity? You
2: know, it, it is. But what I always tell people is if you're looking at the space, right, and you want to have exposure to, you know, internet advertising, why not just own Alphabet? You've got a very similar type of company, the same revenue stream, but you've got a more diversified suite of services, right? You know, Alphabet, a.k.a. Google, has eight uh, platforms with a billion users, right? Whether it's Gmail, Chrome, Maps, YouTube, Android, the Play Store, and Google Drive. So they have a much broader diversity of products, whereas Facebook really just has their core platform of Facebook and to a separate degree Instagram.
0: When does the bleeding stop in terms of the stock sell-off at Facebook, do you believe?
2: Right. That, that's the, the number one question that's being asked. And, you know, it's going to take several days to shake out. Um, you know, the, the concern is the, the forward guidance, right? We are going to see revenue decelerate. And we are going to see expenses likely to tick up. But it may not be as bad as people are expecting. So just like what we saw with the March quarter results, right, where you know people were expecting the worst, it didn't come in quite as bad, and that's why they, they bit it back up to these record levels. You know, Let's let it settle down for a little bit. I, I do think that Facebook is a real business. I think the advertisers are not going to disappear. Yeah. And I do think that people are still going to continue to use it, right? It, there is some saturation that's happening. Right. They have total about 2.5 billion users across all of their platforms. There's only 3 billion people who have access to the Internet.
3: Okay. Now, But
1: Colin, you know, some people could say, as you said, this is a real business. They still can count more than 2 billion uh, people. uh, This is a huge proportion of the globe that uses the platform. So perhaps the flaw lies with the management, the executives who didn't guide the market better, who didn't basically indicate, look, things are slowing down. Just hold your horses and, and sort of uh, and provide better expectations for what, what's to come in real time.
2: Yeah, you could say that. And you could also say that they, they did try to, you know, give certain signals, right, that, that this was was coming um, and that the market did not pay any attention to those signals. right? And that's why we're getting the reset that's happening today.
0: Colin, tell us about Amazon.
2: All right. So, Alexa, which company will become the trillion market cap first? <laughs> and we're going to find that out today after Amazon prints. And, you know, Amazon is one of these companies... That has built this incredible ecosystem, right, you know, around their their prime member systems, and it is a strong contender to become the, the first company to reach that trillion dollar market cap. So, you know, again, an unbelievable run into this earnings print today, right? Uh, you know, we're looking at something up, up 55% year to date. So, I wouldn't be necessarily surprised if there's you know is, is a hiccup because expectations are so strong. But that being said, you know, for the for the longer term. For the longer-term view, right? Amazon is uh, an incredible opportunity to own.
1: So Amazon is sort of this interesting company because they don't see incredible margins. They, they actually aren't as profitable as their dominance would suggest because that's their whole business model, right? Basically to offer the lowest price uh, in order for bigger market share. So what do investors have to see to keep that going to the $1 trillion valuation?
2: Right. And what they do is, is it's the, the degree of leverage that is um, baked into that Amazon uh, business model. And when you, when you look, when you play around and you see, you know, what, a small decrease in, in marketing spend um, or, you know, some improvement in shipping costs or, you know, a tick up uh, in, you know, in AWS, right? You know, services that um, are not physical goods right but more digital goods right that's the area where people want to be focusing in on uh and to 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 see that profitability and you know quite honestly right you know they've run the core business at at break even right all the profit is coming from aws to to get that market share but you've got 100 million you know prime customers they are winning the the entire retail battle and um that profitability will come
0: just quickly colin Is there any other company that you need to own other than Amazon and Alphabet?
2: It it wouldn't be Apple, (laughs) in in my mind, right? You know, certainly, you know, Apple prints next week. Um, They're lagging so far behind, in my view. You know, there's the thesis is is that services will will make up for a saturated smartphone marketplace. But I I don't see Apple having the chops in AI. I I see Siri lagging behind Alexa and, and Google. And so I'd be concerned about that.
1: Colin Gillis, thank you so much for joining us today. Colin Gillis is Director of Research at CR Partners. Take a look at small and mid cap stocks with Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, columnist, and blogger at MLiveGo Go on the Bloomberg. The Russell two thousand is up, even though you are seeing uh, some turbulence in the broader indices.
4: Oh, absolutely, Lisa. And the Russell's gain amounts to nine tenths of a percent. Quite a contrast with the S and P five hundred, which is lower by a tenth. Of a percent. The Russell's sharpest game by far belongs to SuperValue, whose ticker is SVU. The grocery wholesaler and supermarket owner has risen 64.5% after agreeing to a $2.9 billion takeover by United Natural Foods. Now, SuperValue had been under pressure from activist investor Blackwell's Capital to consider a sale. United Natural, their ticker, UNFI. That stock has one of the Russell's biggest losses in response to the deal. It's down 13.5%. Now, uh, another stock lifting the index is Anika Therapeutics, ticker ANIK. The maker of orthopedic products is up 22%. Anika's second quarter earnings were more than twice analyst's average estimate in the Bloomberg survey, and sales beat projections. And you've got an even bigger gain in John Bean Technologies, ticker JBT. It's up almost 25%. The food and beverage technology company posted second quarter profit and revenue to the top estimates. And uh, the Russell's steepest decline belongs to LSB Industries, ticker LXU. The chemical company is down 14.5%. LSB had a wider second quarter loss than analysts expected.
0: Thank you very much, Dave Wilson. Remember to send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net to sign up for his daily free email newsletter. Well, you know, Lisa, we've been talking on a regular basis about the high cost of real estate in places such as Seattle, Silicon Valley, as well as Austin, Texas. Uh, But uh, it appears that there might be a slowdown on the way. And here to tell us more about it is Prashant Gopal, U.S real estate reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, joining us from our 1061 Boston Newberry Studios in Boston. And you can follow Prashant on Twitter at Mr. Gopal, M-R Gopal. All right, Mr. Gopal, tell (laughs) us about the potential slowdown in these pretty hot real estate areas.
5: Well, I guess you could say it was bound to happen, right? So prices have just been... um, rising at a very rapid pace for, for years now. Uh, they're outpacing, uh, income growth. It's, you know, more than twice income growth right now. So, um, and then you throw in the increase in mortgage rates and you could see that people who are stretching can only stretch so much.
1: All right, so here's what I'm struggling to understand: mortgage rates haven't gone up that much, uh, and you have seen a dearth of inventory in recent years. That's what people say. People aren't actually selling their homes. So, how is this sort of how do you how do you sort of prove that it really is mortgage rates that's causing the slowdown?
5: Well, I mean, it's it's the one thing that has changed. But if you think about it, mortgage rates—you know—the prices that we had, you, you had the low mortgage rates baked in. So on a you know percentage basis percentage point. You know, if you look at the how much mortgage rates increased in terms of what it's done to um, monthly payments, it, it, it is somewhat significant. And then throwing in the, uh, the these home prices, you could, you know, people especially on the bottom end where prices are rising the most um, are starting to feel that. You know, a home builder today, um, a Pulte Group just had their earnings and they actually uh, they had a drop in orders and. Um, they blamed the increase in in mortgage rates, um, and they said it was uh, that they were seeing a slowdown, especially with first time buyers.
0: Prashant, we spoke earlier today with Doug Duncan, economist at Fannie Mae. He said houses that have yet to be built are already being purchased. That you can't find a home. What are your thoughts?
5: Uh, well, you know, there's there's some truth to that. So there is a real shortage of inventory so you know it sounds like it conflicts with what i've just been saying but you know the inventory levels are very low historically they're just starting to rise now from that very low level so it, it's kind of like um you know maybe we're on the cusp of a turning point um where you know things still remain strong but you know they're they're not uh they're, you know prices aren't Accelerating price growth isn't accelerating anymore, and inventories, which had been just dropping um, month after month, are now starting to rise, especially in the uh, in the hottest markets.
1: So, Prashant, one thing that I, I think is sort of underlying this discrepancy, maybe we could call it, is that there seems to be a two-tier market, which is affordable homes for people who perhaps are first-time buyers or who are starting families and uh, homes that sell for more than a million dollars and are in urban areas, um, and that there seems to be plenty of the higher-end homes for sale, but the inventory of lower-end homes isn't there. Is that an accurate assessment of what's going on?
5: Yeah, you know, it's actually even within the markets, right? So if you look at some of those uh, pricier markets, uh, the, there's a shortage of starter homes in those markets. Um, you know, there may be more expensive homes in the markets, but there aren't as many of the entry level homes. And that's sort of what's making it really hard for folks to get into um, the housing market. Uh, and prices, you know, are rising much faster on the bottom of those markets. You know, the, the lower end homes, those yeah. prices are rising much faster than they are for the for the more expensive homes.
1: Prashant, just real quick here. Are we heading for another housing crash?
5: Huh. You know, I wish I had my crystal ball. Please, I, I... get it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not hearing that from a lot of people. So I think a lot, at least, you know, they were wrong the last time, of course. But uh, they're saying that, you know, we have a still a strong economy. And um, this is just all an affordability problem, and if prices actually fall a little bit, it actually helps, um, because people uh, will be able to get back in, and you might see more sales as a result.
1: Prashant Kapal, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Always a pleasure to speak with you and your story uh, today on the Bloomberg was really good on this issue. Prashant Kapal is U.S. real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. Marijuana is a growing business, and a growing number of professionals are entering the field uh, in a host of very traditional ways. And here joining us now is Rishi Gautam. He's executive chairman of M. Hardeen Group, which is based in Denver. He's here with us in our 1130 studios in New York. Rishi, um, you worked at Goldman Sachs. You managed money uh, with a private office. You were the original investor four years ago with M. Hardeen Group. Why did you get into this business?
3: So as an investor, we were attracted to the market four years ago. It was such a new market and a developing market within uh, the U.S., and we had an existing uh, relationship with one of the founders of M Hardine who brought us into uh, into the industry to really understand the marketplace and how it was so fragmented from state by state that we wanted to take advantage of the opportunity by creating what is now known as M Dean, the management company. And
1: the industry being marijuana, mostly medical, or... Everything
3: Predominantly medical uh, today. It's obviously changing with more recreational coming online, but our business today, over 90%, is, is focused on the medical market. Tell people about your business. What actually do you do? MRD is a management company. So we started a business managing cannabis assets on behalf of license owners. So anyone who came into the industry and got a license, whether it was Colorado or other states, frankly, didn't have the operational background to run a cannabis asset. Really, no one had that background coming into the space in the legal framework. So M. Hardeen set up a management company to come in and operate the assets turnkey on behalf of the license owner. So not too dissimilar from a real estate owner hiring a Marriott or a Starwood to come in with a flag and operate a turnkey hotel. So our hotel flag... Uh, was the original genesis of the business.
0: So, for example, you have actual workers that are employed by M. Hardeen that are working in greenhouses, that are working in retail establishments.
3: There's 362 employees across the U.S. managing cultivation, processing, and retail facilities in cannabis. And for cultivation, it's indoor grows, outdoor, and greenhouse facilities.
1: How big do you think the marijuana industry could become in the U.S.? if? The recreational aspect is legalized
3: so all the numbers point to a seven billion or so industry size today in the u.s that's growing to 20 25 billion over the next few years we also have exposure to canada which is about a half a billion dollar industry today growing to six or seven billion that growth is really predicated by the opening of the recreational market in, in those in those states and jurisdictions. So so long as recreational opens up the way that we expect it to, you'll have that lift.
1: So one big question is, once you do get a legalization, what stops the Philip Morris's of the world uh, from plowing right into this field and using their vast distribution and cultivation networks to blow everybody else out of the water? And what would you say to that?
3: Philip Morris doesn't grow cannabis, and growing cannabis is a real specialty commodity. It takes a lot of experience and, and efficiencies to bring product to market. So many folks outside looking into the space really think it's just a plant, you grow it, and really don't put a quantum of risk on, the, on what it takes to bring product to market we have mastered that process of bringing legal cannabis to the market, passing health standards, optimizing space capture and all of these production facilities. Our business has produced and sold, our licensed facilities have produced and sold over 100,000 kilograms of this product since we started. That's a number that no one can match. And that includes Philip Morris. Now you've got the
0: different segments, right? You have cultivation. Yes. Processing and then ultimate retail sale. How, do you scientifically or technically offer consistency across all that? Are there testing facilities or like in any kind of, let's say, drug, you know, from the pharmaceutical industry, you want to make sure that what you're buying from one pill bottle is the same as you're getting from another pill
3: bottle. Right. That's a great question. So the genesis of our business is on the cultivation side. We were cultivators first. We, we, had, we bolted on the processing expertise and we bolted on the retail management side over the years cultivation is the driver of the consistency. And our facilities that we've stood up, whether it's in Hawaii or in Halifax, have a very standardized approach to operations, to production, and ultimately the consistency of the product. Folks right now have more of a niche approach where you have one particular facility type in California, another in Colorado. We've standardized the process of bringing product to market, which ultimately will yield to pharmaceutical products with consistency, recreational products with consistency across multiple jurisdictions.
1: So you're planning currently an initial public offering and you've raised money certainly in the debt markets. I'm just wondering, does the fact that you're dealing with a currently mostly illegal substance complicate your fundraising abilities?
3: Not necessarily complicated it. We've been, uh, obviously, as an investor in this business four years ago and understanding the nuances of the industry, what we've done is take the knowledge of how to raise capital in general from prior experiences in other industries and just a general landscape of capital sources today. And we've really focused our interest in Canada. Canada is where we're going to list. Canada is our, uh, for all intents and purposes, our booking center and the booking center for many of these cannabis companies that are public today. So we've spent the last year and a half... Uh, p- putting together our Canadian capital market strategy. 30% of our company today is owned by Canadian institutions, long only money that have really had limited experience in the cannabis space, but they bought our opportunity because it's a managing company. We have actual revenue, actual earnings, actual operational experience. So we've already planted an institutional shareholder base in our company. We've already planted the Canadian landscape there and that's where the source of capital has come from and that's where we will be listed.
0: Rishi, just give you about 20 seconds here. What's the biggest mistake people make when they hear about investing in the cannabis industry and they want to get into it?
3: Understanding that there's a difference between a license owner and an asset manager. So there are plenty of companies out there that own licenses. Very few of them actually have the operational expertise to scale their businesses, and that's what we have.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Rishi Gautam is the executive chairman of M. Hardin Group. They are based in Denver, uh, giving us details about uh, raising capital and the intricacies of the legal cannabis industry.
1: A rocky period for the automobile industry. There has been widespread disruption uh, on a variety of levels. We have tariffs. We have the peak auto uh, sort of meme that's been going around. Here to talk about all that is Scott Painter, founder of FAIR, F-A-I-R, based in Santa Monica, California. Um, Scott, you are the former chief executive and founder of True Car. Can you just tell us before we get into what some are calling Carmageddon, which was yesterday, um, can you just explain what is FAIR?
6: is an app that represents a completely new form of ownership. It's a way to get a car on your phone, and you subscribe to it in the same way that you get your uh, your data, your content, your music, your movies, but there's no long-term commitment. You just simply download the app, scan your driver's license, link a form of payment, shop, and you can sign with your finger.
1: So, Scott, the reason why I wanted to start with the model of your business is, is because it sort of points to a a real seismic shift in the automobile industry. Do you think that the weakness that we're seeing today, certainly led by Ford, but also in GM and uh, Fiat Chrysler, do you think that the weakness really comes as much from this changing model of car ownership as it does from tariffs?
6: Well, I think that this is a really interesting time to be in the auto industry. If you're an incumbent automaker, you're certainly thinking about how do you regain the trust and the relationship with modern consumers who have almost binarily said they don't want to go into a dealership and do battle. They don't want the long-term commitment. So I think you're seeing all sorts of new business models arrive ar- arise, and you've got a lot of diversification happen- happening. I think most of the car makers at this point are almost invested in just about any new ownership model that comes up on the horizon. Just recently, we saw you know GM enter the peer-to-peer market as well, which is you know sort of a a big question mark as to whether or not customers are going to go for it. But it does show that they are willing to be flexible and explore options that they never would have before.
0: Now, you uh, have been in the automobile, connected to the automobile industry in one way or another since you were fourteen years old. Correct?
6: You know, I think that uh, great entrepreneurs and great companies solve real problems. I think the. The problem of buying and owning a car is something that really technology can offer a great solution for and I do think that, you know, it should be simpler, it should be more accessible, and I think, you know, technology can offer that and deliver incredible savings.
0: All right, what I was going with that is do you believe over the course of your career that the large automobile manufacturers such as Ford, GM and now Fiat Chrysler, have they been leaders or are they followers when it comes to connecting? with customers?
6: Well, I think historically they have not been leaders. I think that right now, though, they are absolutely leading and innovating and doing almost anything they can to reset that relationship with their consumers. So it is a a time where the smartphone and technology and transparency have really created a, a, a real transformational opportunity. And I think that companies like Tesla and, you know, Uber and all of this have really change the paradigm where it's no longer just about making a good product. It is about really shaping that relationship and how you buy and how you engage the car. And so new ownership models like what we're building at FAIR, I think really have a lot to do with it. Certainly, there's a lot of exogenous stuff, tariffs and the industry and the health of the industry that are certainly affecting all of this. But keep in mind, there's also a new and a used car business. The used car business by dollar volume is twice as big as the new car business, and by velocity, it's three times larger.
1: So what are you seeing in the used car market right now?
6: Well, right now, I think we're getting to a place where we've got really great information. If you're a buyer for a used car, though, the used car prices are coming down. In fact, over the last 12 months, we've seen used car wholesale and retail pricing drop more rateably than we have over the last 130 years almost a 20 percent decline and that's in large part because we've been at peak production for the last three or four years and that's creating an oversupply situation we almost make 17 million cars on the new car side here in the u.s we're going to see six million lease returns coming back into the market over the next 12 to 18 months and that will have a continued effect on retail and wholesale pricing of used cars, and that'll make used cars a greater value than they've been over the last decade.
1: Scott, what does that mean, though, about where we are in this auto market? I mean, does this sort of give steam to the peak auto uh, discussions that we're hearing?
6: Well, I think that there's no question that if you look at demand for cars over a long period of time, it tends to be very linear, but the industry itself tends to also behave very cyclically. We go from a peak production in say two thousand you know six, seven, where we are making almost sixteen million cars down to a low of almost nine million cars in two thousand and nine and ten, and then now we're back up at historic highs of seventeen plus million cars being produced. So when those cycles, sort of come through the industry, they have a massive impact on whether we are buying new cars or buying used cars. And then you also have very interesting financial contracts, whereas in 2009, to get the industry going again in terms of um, volume, we actually introduced and overweighted on leasing. Today, almost 80% of premium and luxury cars are leased.
0: Scott, is there a uh, is there a model that Tesla is following that you believe will ultimately have to change, or can you envision that the industry is going to follow the Tesla model?
6: Well, I think that um, Tesla is sort of leaning in this direction, but I think that the way that we all go to the bank to borrow a big pile of money to buy a depreciating asset is really what has to change. You've got almost $1.5 billion on planet Earth carrying $5 trillion of consumer automotive debt. And it's the worst financial decision for a somebody just getting started in life or somebody who's maybe got a spotty payment history or is in financial trouble or is just building a family to go out and get into debt in order to get transportation and the thing they need to get a job or to get around. So I think the the model of ownership fundamentally does have to change because the the. You know, it's not just a convenience issue. It's just a bad financial bargain to go out and borrow a bunch of money to buy a depreciating asset.
0: And finally, uh, Scott, uh, what kind of car do you drive?
6: You know, I've got about four cars all from FAIR, and, it, you know, this, this model really works for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you have great credit and just want convenience and you're an early adopter or you're somebody who's really working a couple jobs and struggling and on a budget. Um, but I've got right now four kids, and I've got different cars for different, different things, but they're all cars that I subscribe to through FAIR.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Scott Painter is the founder of Fair. They are based in Santa Monica, California. He is the former chief executive and the founder of TrueCar.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.